Good morning, everybody. Good morning. It's great to see you again. Thank you so much for uh, allowing us to crash the party here, <laughs> the celebration on the Lord's Day. And uh, we're so glad to be able to spend this time together with you. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, I didn't know that Gloria passed away. I, I was um, close with her and Angel at a time years ago. And so I knew she was sick, but I didn't know she passed. So I'm heartbroken about that. And any prayers um, continue to go out to Angel and the rest of the family. <clears throat> This morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be considering verses 1 through 5. So if you'd like to turn there in your Bibles, it's going to be a little while before we get there. Um, And um, we're going to consider what Jesus has to say about judging others. It's a great message for a guest speaker to come in and uh, (laughs) share with the church. So we'll see how it goes. But uh, it's an honor to be able to be here and share with you again, as I mentioned. And every time we visit here, we grow in our uh, love uh, for this church body. And as I've said before, we really appreciate Pastor Paul and his family, uh, the encouragement that he's been to us, uh, to me in particular, um, has been just very, very much needed and appreciated during this season, especially. He mentioned I was Mina's youth pastor, and it was just a delight to have that role in her life, and I just love seeing how the Lord's continuing to grow and mature her, and I love spending time with her as well. And um, as we turn to the message for this morning, I want to begin with a question. Here it is, you ready for it? Do you believe that you are spiritually mature? Now, you don't have to answer me answer answer the question but in your own mind you don't have to answer out loud do you believe you are spiritually mature now you might think wait a minute is this a trick question is this like being asked if i think i'm humble (laughs) of course i'm humble everybody says so and i think i'm one of the most humble people alive so uh, no this is an honest question this isn't a question like do you think you're humble This is an honest question. Do you believe you are spiritually mature? I think it's a great question. Every professing believer would likely have one of the following four answers. Answer number one. I'm probably not spiritually mature, but I'm not really concerned about it either. Number two. I don't think I'm spiritually mature, but I'd like to become spiritually mature. Number three, I would like to think that I'm spiritually mature. And number four, yes, I know I'm spiritually mature. Now, until a couple of years ago, I would have identified with answer number three. I would like to think that I'm spiritually mature. After all, I've been to Bible college. I've been a Christian for 17 years. It felt like God put me in a microwave when I got saved. I started sharing the gospel right away, started doing ministry right away, felt God's call on my life uh, for vocational ministry, went to Bible college, studied theology, apologetics, ate it up, started teaching more and more the scripture, spiritual truths, uh, leading people in spiritual disciplines. So, of course, I would think that I have some degree of spiritual maturity if I'm serving God in those roles and in those capacities. Then, 
As life continued to get more and more difficult in some various ways, a counselor friend introduced me to a ministry called Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. And to this book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, written by church pastor and Emotionally Healthy Discipleship co-founder, Pete Scazzaro. I'll be referencing and quoting from him a bit during uh, this message. But when I read the subtitle, it was like a shot to my heart. Here it is. Again, the book's called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Subtitle. It's impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. I'm going to read it again. It's impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. Does that strike you in the same way that it struck me? I felt it was clear by my lack of understanding my own emotions, anxieties, depression, fears, anger, and so on, that I was not emotionally healthy. But I had not connected my emotional immaturity with a lack of spiritual maturity. In fact, I mistakenly believed that my ability to hide or cover over my emotional problems was a sign of my spiritual maturity. Let me say that again. I mistakenly believed that my ability to hide my emotional problems was a sign of my spiritual maturity. I was not living out of the reality that God's work of true transformation always begins from deep within. So the thought came as a surprise to me that if I'm not emotionally mature, that could mean I am not spiritually mature. If what Pete Scazzaro is saying is true. My concern was further confirmed when I read what Pete Scazzaro, having identified these in his own life, calls the top ten symptoms of emotionally unhealthy spirituality. I'll read them to you in a few moments. But first, I want to confess something. I am still in the beginning stages of this discovery. A couple of weeks ago, in fact, I took an emotionally healthy spirituality personal assessment test. Based on your answers, the test scores you in one of four categories. These are the categories. Emotional infant emotional child, emotional adolescent, and emotional adult. And as I honestly considered and answered each of the questions, I had an increasing awareness that I was not going to score very high. Here are my test results, along with a general description. I'm going to be vulnerable and transparent to you guys. The test results, they have a general description to go along with it. There's a little picture of some pretty ferns with this revealing, there's a pretty, pretty picture with this revealing uh, uh, test score over the top of it. It says this, you're an emotional child. Emotional child, here's the description. When life is going my way, I am content. 
However, as soon as disappointment or stress enter the picture, I quickly unravel inside. I often take take things personally, interpreting disagreements or criticism as a personal offense. Now, I took personal offense to that statement. (laughs) So it must be true. When I don't get my way, I often complain, withdraw, manipulate, drag my feet, become sarcastic, or take revenge. I often end up living off the spirituality of other people because I am so overloaded and distracted. My prayer life is primarily talking to God, telling, talking to God, telling Him what to do and how to fix it how to fix my problems. Prayer is more a duty than a delight. Those were my test scores. Now before you judge me, consider the first verse from our passage this morning, which says, do not judge or you will be judged. We'll talk about that a little bit more. But I mentioned I would read the top 10 symptoms of emotionally unhealthy spirituality, according to Pete Scazzaro. I, I so wish I had time to unpack all ten of these statements. Uh, but I'm trying to get to one main point, one takeaway. So for now, uh, just see if these brief descriptions strike any chords for you personally. When I read them, it was sort of like being confronted again by the Ten Commandments. <laughs> you hold the Ten Commandments up like a mirror and you see, oh my goodness, I'm guilty of breaking all ten of these. Uh, I'm in desperate need of a Savior, right? Galatians uh, 3.24, right? The law taught us our need for a Savior. In the same way, these ten symptoms revealed to me that something is broken inside of me in a way that helped me understand something's wrong. Something's wrong, and something needs to happen in order to fix it. Here are the top ten symptoms of emotionally unhealthy spirituality, according to Pete Scazzaro. Again, I wish I had time to unpack these, but I'm just going to read through them, maybe make a few comments. Number one, using God to run from God. Using God to run from God. Again, I wish I had more time to unpack, but basically what he means by that is when God is trying to reveal something about us and our brokenness, instead of tuning in on that, we busy ourselves distract ourselves with serving God more. Or we use scripture to spiritually block what God might want to do. I so appreciate that Pastor Paul quoted from the Apostle Paul in First Thessalonians chapter 4 about the death of the saints and us not worrying because we don't have to grieve like those who have no hope. Sometimes, I don't know if this has been true in your life, I've seen it in other people's lives, and it's been true in my own life. Sometimes I apply that or interpret it as I don't have to grieve at all. I don't have to grieve at all because Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, set your mind on things above where Christ is seated, um, on heavenly things so that you don't really have to be distracted by the things here on earth. That's not a correct application of that scripture. If it was, then Jesus shouldn't have cried at the tomb of Lazarus especially since he was going to be raising him in a few verses from the dead. So using God to run from God, number one. Number two, ignoring anger, sadness, and fear. Ignoring anger, sadness, and fear. Are there such things as bad emotions? 
Did you know that God is an emotional God? Are his emotions bad? They're not. We're created in his image, and in his image, we also are emotional beings. And so ignoring our emotions is denying something about us that is born in the image of God. One example, I might have shared this uh, with some of you or or last time I spoke, but uh, in December 2021, we were pregnant with our fourth child. I have a son who was adopted by another family. It's Mason. That's a whole other story I'd love to share with you sometime. But Katie and I, my wife and I's fourth child, we were pregnant with her. And in December 2021, uh, later in the pregnancy, uh, we experienced fetal demise. And um, we found out from the ultrasound where we were having the gender reveal. So at the same time we found out she was a girl, we found out that she was no longer, no longer living. And obviously it was devastating. And resources that had been invested in us, care from a few counselors, had prepared us with some tools to be able to engage real-time grief, loss, suffering in ways that we hadn't before. There was a paradigm shift, and it went something like this. We were having a home birth. We had all three of our boys were born at home, and so we had a private ultrasound tech come, and through the process revealed or discovered that she was no longer living. We had to uh, schedule an induction and go through labor and delivery at the hospital. But after the ultrasound, um, which our boys were supposed to be there with us to see the gender and be excited about what was happening, um, we had kind of uh, set them up preoccupied because we knew something wasn't quite right because our midwife had tipped us off the day before that something wasn't quite right. So um, some friends offered to pick our boys up because um, we had alerted them that what was going on and they, they offered to come and take the boys so we could have some time. And so they did that. And um, I made the living room comfortable, made the couch comfortable, turned the lights down low, put on some instrumental music, and Katie and I went to the couch, and we held each other, and we cried for hours. And we named our grief. We we talked about the things that we would miss about Corey's life, you know, the hopes and the dreams that were shattered to pieces because of this excitement. Everybody was rooting for a girl, and when we found out that she was a girl at the same time that we had lost her was just unbearable. And we spent that time crying and grieving and naming our hurts. And then our boys came home after we, we had kind of gone through uh, that process. Our boys came home and they got settled in and we invited them to the living room and we began to share with them what had happened with their little sister, whom we later named Corey Day, Mercy of God. And I'll never forget what happened. It was such a sacred experience. My our oldest son, Dutro, laid down face down on the ground like this, his face in the carpet, crying. Our middle son, Ames, stomped around the living room, punched the couch, punched pillows, yelled out in the air, I'm so angry! And it would collapse and just weep. And that went on for about an hour and a half or so. And when that Surge had kind of passed through. We got up. We went to Amy's drive-thru, our favorite spot. We got milkshakes and hamburgers. We felt like we were the only ones in the room. We were crying. We are talking about our grief, our loss. And this is, this is the difference that it made in our lives. Whereas before 
this paradigm shift in our life, I think the way it would have gone is we would have just tried to, we would have, we would have been okay being sad, but we would have tried to get over our sadness as quickly as possible and say, this the kind of thing happens. This is just, you know, brokenness in the world and we just need to move on and be strong. Say things like she's in heaven or maybe God will give us another baby. Those are true things, but they are spiritually blocking something that God wants to do in our hearts. They're kind of tone-deaf comments in situations like that. There would have been a lot of confusion, hurt, bitterness, anger expressed toward one another in our family. Instead, the result, the fruit from that was a couple of weeks of the most sacred, tender, relational bonding experience that my family had ever experienced. And it made all the difference in the world. It was the first real-time test in this new kind of paradigm shift of pursuing emotional health that we had experienced in our life, and it made all the difference. And it's still making a difference in many ways. That was number two, ignoring anger, sadness, and fear. I won't spend as much time on each of them. I'll just kind of read through. Number three, dying to the wrong things. Dying to the wrong things. Doing things or um, not doing things that God has gifted you with because you might not feel that they're spiritual enough or holy enough. Not using your God-given gifts, abilities, talents, desires to worship and express uh, who you are created in the image of God back to Him. Believing that something like painting out at Spring Lake isn't as holy as serving in children's ministry at your church. That's, according to Pete Scazzaro, a sign or a symptom of emotional unhealth. Number four, denying the impact of the, of the past on the present. Denying the impact of the past on the present. This is something I did. In fact, one of the first scriptures I memorized as a new believer was, out of the New Testament, was 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone, and the new has come. And that's true because Jesus rescued me. He redeemed me. He saved me from my sin and the consequences and the burden and the penalty of my sin, having been a criminal against the holy God. But what I also thought it meant was that what I had experienced as a child, adolescent, young adult had no effect on who I was now. And what happened was it created a faith crisis because I began to see things in my life that didn't line up with the reality of being a new creation. Questioning, am I even saved? Am, am I even a Christian? Because I don't see the abundant life that Jesus promised. I don't see the fruits of the Spirit working their way out through my life. Something's wrong. So that means that either I'm not a Christian or the book isn't true. So I had a personal faith crisis, partially because of mis applying, misinterpreting um, spiritual truths that definitely are true, but were just applied incorrectly in my life. Denying the impact of the past on the present. That was number four. Number five, dividing life into secular and sacred compartments. Dividing life into secular and sacred compartments. 
if we're in Christ, if we are a creation of God, all of life is sacred. Number six, doing for God rather than being with God. Doing for God rather than being with God. You might have heard people say, you know, that there's a difference between uh, a human being and a human doing. (laughs) We are human beings, and that's a good reminder that we need to spend time with God, not not just spend time doing things for God. In fact, our doing for God should and can really only come from our being with God. Number seven, spiritualizing away conflict. Spiritualizing away conflict. Jesus said, those who persecute me will persecute you so it's just the reality of this life and so I don't really need to deal with the conflict I can just kind of overlook it and move past it but what happens is it doesn't go away and something else will happen if you don't engage that conflict something else will happen animosity bitterness um, a new phrase that's come up especially from social media and texting ghosting you know just ghost someone because you just can't stand the conflict that's there, you want to be spiritual about it, so instead you just ignore it, and by doing so, sometimes ignore them. Number eight, covering over our brokenness, weakness, and failure. Covering over our brokenness, weakness, and failure. If it's true, as the Apostle Paul said, that God makes his strength known in our weakness, then it is a disservice to ourselves and to the Lord if we cover over our weaknesses if we cover over our brokenness, if we cover over our failures. We're not serving anybody by doing that. Number nine, living without limits. Living without limits. We are finite creatures. God is infinite. And so there are some ways where we can't be like God. For instance, we can't do all things at all times. Only God can do that. We have limited time. We have limited energy. We have limited resources. And if there are limits on the things that we have, then there also needs to be boundaries, healthy boundaries, godly boundaries, to protect those limits. When Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you must pick up, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me, that does not mean that you can't take care of yourself and make sure that you honor your limits as a finite human being. In fact, in doing so, in many ways, you can serve and love others better by acknowledging your limits in your life and holding to them. So that was number nine, living without limits. Number 10, judging other people's spiritual journey. Judging other people's spiritual journey. That leads us to our passage this morning that you've been holding on to, Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5 says this, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? We'll take a closer look at this verse later. Verse 4, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye 
when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, I could spend time expositing this passage, examining key Greek words, and exhorting you all to apply what Jesus is commanding and tell you to stop judging others. Stop judging other people. And then I'll say, but you can't do this apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. So pray and ask the Holy Spirit to fill you and to help you do this. And you'll go on your way and you'll ask God to fill you with the Holy Spirit and you'll feel good about doing that. And then, early this week, when you judge someone in your heart, or, God forbid, out loud, you'll think, God, why did I just judge that person? I asked you to help me not to do that. And there I go doing it again. Then you'll think to yourself, am I ever going to grow as a Christian? But not knowing what else to do, in your pride and insecurity, which we all have at some level or another, you'll pretend to yourself and others that you are spiritually mature and living the victorious Christian life. And you'll wait for next Sunday's message from Matthew, entitled, Ask, Seek, and Knock. And the exhortation to pray more often and more fervently. You can't do this apart from the Holy Spirit. And so the cycle continues. It's not what I want to do today, and I am not saying that teaching the Word and expositing the Word is not good. It is good. It's necessary. It's a way that God uses for us to grow in our relationship with Him. But this method, in particular, is the method of reasoning that I used to use on myself and others. But after so many years of pretending like it was working when it really wasn't, not deeply, I believe God is showing me with the help of others, those who have come alongside in our lives and have helped invest into our lives in these ways, I believe that He's showing me what's been missing. There was one key word in my description that we tend to gloss over. Why? God, why? Did I just judge that person? The problem is, what we subconsciously mean, is God, why didn't you stop me from doing that? I asked for your help. Why didn't you help me? I believe that's the wrong question. We rarely investigate what is going on in our own hearts. We rarely ask the question of ourselves, why did I just do that? I believe there is a key step between ignorance and understanding. This is something I have learned recently. And I'm going to ask you to add this word to your spiritual vernacular. It's the word of the day. Curiosity. Curiosity. Are you curious about why you are the way you are? 
about why you do the things you do? Now, the easy answer as a Christian is to repeat what Paul said in Romans 7, verse 20. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. This verse was very powerful for me. In fact, Romans chapter 7 was the first time as an unbeliever becoming a believer where I felt like God was speaking to me through His Word. It felt like the words came off of the page and grabbed me by the, the collar of my shirt. It felt like somebody was reading my mail or digging through my trash. The Holy Spirit was speaking to me when He said, the things that I want to do, I don't find myself doing those things. No, the things that I don't want to do, those are the very things that I find myself doing. Who will deliver me from this body of death, O wretched man that I am? But thanks be to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so this is true. We do the things that we don't want to do because of sin living inside us. But being part, or part of being, deeply transformed by God is by being as specific as possible when it comes to not only why we've sinned, or not only how we've sinned, I should say, but why we sinned. Being a part of being transformed by God comes down to not only how we've sinned, but why we sinned. In fact, the issue of how we sin is deeply connected to why we sin. King David knew this. He's famously called, as you all know, or most of you know, a man after God's own heart. Even though he was an adulterer and a murderer and so many other things. But he was also, and I think this is part of why he was called a man after God's own heart. Did you know that he was also a man after his own heart? In other words, he desired that God help him to know himself. King David was a very transparent, a very, I would say, the risk of using a a catchphrase in today's culture, a very self-aware person. Psalm 51 and verse 6. Famous passage from King David. It's the psalm that he wrote after he was um, after he was confronted by Nathan the prophet about having an adulterous affair with Bathsheba he says surely to the Lord surely you desire truth in the inner parts you teach me wisdom in the inmost place Psalm 139 and verse 23 search me O God and know my heart Test me and know my anxious thoughts. You know what's interesting about that psalm is he already acknowledges in verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. So why is he saying in verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. He wanted to know who God was, but he also wanted to know who he was. He understood that knowing himself and knowing God were deeply connected. I wonder if that's something that we understand today. Does this sound new to you? 
Does it sound new to you? It certainly did to me. In fact, it sounded so new, I struggled with the thought that it was maybe unbiblical or worldly or even new agey. Self-awareness, self-knowledge, self-care. Are those really things we should be thinking about, talking about as Christians? However, it's not new. It's not an unbiblical or worldly concept, and it's certainly not new age. Pete Scazzaro points out the following. Listen to these quotes. Augustine wrote in Confessions in AD 400, How can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self? He famously prayed, Grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know Thee. Wow. Meister Eckhart, a Dominican writer from that 13th century, wrote this. No one can know God, no one can know God who does not first know himself. St. Teresa of Avila wrote in The Way of Perfection, almost all problems in the spiritual life stem from a lack of self-knowledge. Now you might say, Adam, these must have been Catholic mystics. I don't know about that, but listen to what John Calvin said in 1530. He wrote this in the opening of his Institutes of the Christian Religion. He said, Our wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But as these are connected together by many ties, it is not easy to determine which of the two precedes which of the two precedes and gives birth to the other. It is not easy to determine which of the two, self-knowledge and God-knowledge, precedes and gives birth to the other. What I hear Calvin saying here is that knowing ourselves is so integral to knowing God that it's hard to distinguish which one leads to the other. It reminds me of the passage in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 kind of in a different way, but similar. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit. Have you ever worked out what the difference is between soul and spirit? Have you ever tried to distinguish between the two? It's a mystery. But God is there. That's part of what that verse is saying, that God can use his word to get to places that we don't understand ourselves. As someone has said, God is closer to me than I am to myself. Now, if God is closer to me than I am to myself, then perhaps part of getting closer to God involves also getting closer to myself, knowing things about myself that I may know more about God. That he can expand my capacity, the capacity for my soul to experience him in times of grief, in times of brokenness, in times of relational pain, in, in times of, of, of medical and, and, and physical problems, in times of loneliness, in times of discontent. Is God in there somewhere? wanting to show me something about myself. 
Are you curious about who you are? About why you do the things you do? About why you judge others? Remember verse 3? I said we were going to look at it again. Remember verse 3 from our passage? Look at it again. In my translation, this is the way it reads. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Why? Why do you do that? And why don't you pay attention to it? We don't pay attention to the why in our lives because we haven't learned the importance of knowing ourselves. Most of us, I would dare to say, if anybody's like me or those that I've observed, the conservative Western church, I would say they call it the conventional church, puts a lot of emphasis on knowing God. And it should. There should be a ton of emphasis on knowing God. Why? Because John 17, 3, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Part of eternal life involves knowing God and getting to know Him more. But sadly, there seems to be a great lack of the spiritual discipline. Yes, the spiritual discipline of knowing ourselves. I've recently become curious about myself in this way. And I have so much to learn and so far to go. But it is making a marked difference in my life, in our marriage, in our family, our parenting, our relationships. And part of our ministry, which I introduced last time I was here, um, but I didn't at the beginning of this message, Wilson Family Ministries, we started last year, last November. Part of our ministry is to invite and equip others to do the same. If you're anything like me, you may not even know where or how to begin. <laughs> I needed help. I think that's what most people experience. You know, it's been said that we can't find ourselves by ourselves. We can't find ourselves by ourselves. In fact, the idea of finding ourselves at all seems to conflict with what Jesus taught. In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 39 and Matthew 16 verse 25, John 12, 25, and all those passages, he says something like this, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life, for me, for my sake, will find it. Again, maybe we're not understanding that correctly. In context, Jesus is not talking about self-knowledge or self-awareness in these passages. He's talking about surrendering and following him. He's not talking about self-awareness and self-knowledge. In fact, getting to know ourselves more enables us to surrender more of ourselves to Him. He's talking about surrender and discipleship. But how can we surrender everything to Him if there are parts of our lives which we're not aware? Jesus was self-aware in the holiest sense of the word. He knew exactly who He was. He knew exactly what He came to do. And, he, and there was going to be nothing and no one to stop him from doing that. He was what's been called differentiated. He didn't care what other people thought about him. He had no fear of man. 
Why? Because he was self-aware. He knew he, who he was. Self-awareness is not a bad thing when it's done in conformity to the image of Christ. In fact, it's a necessary part of our being conformed into his image because that's who he is. That's who he wants us to be. We can't find ourselves by ourselves. Put another way, from Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 5 as we wrap up. Proverbs 20 and verse 5 says we can't find ourselves by ourselves in this way. The purposes of a man's heart are deep waters, but a man of understanding draws them out. If we don't have the understanding enough to draw out the purposes of our heart, then those that do have the understanding can come alongside and help us to draw out those purposes and to understand ourselves better. The purposes of a man's heart are deep waters, but a man of understanding draws them out. Of course, Jesus is that man of understanding, but he also uses other people of understanding to help us in that process. Are you curious about who you are, why you do the things you do? If you're curious about becoming more curious, <laughs> please come and speak with us. We'd love to share more with you about um, what God's put on our heart to do in uh, ministry to individuals and churches and people outside of churches um, who are experiencing similar kinds of brokenness that we've experienced. Everybody's hurting from something. Everybody has some brokenness. I just wanted to read one more verse. Um, relates to our passage, but more so to our ministry. I was at a conference and I got to share the vision of our ministry, Wilson Family Ministries. And one part of it is called Holy Free. And that's the part where we want to bring emotional health resources to individuals, churches, those outside of the church, people have experienced church hurt, afraid to go to church again, don't want to. They have some kind of traumatic experience that they associate with, with spiritual things. They associate with Jesus. They associate with reading their scripture. They associate with prayer. And it makes it very difficult for them to come to Jesus in that way. I shared my vision at a conference I went to and somebody said, what you shared reminded me of this passage. And they put, it in, put their Bible in front of me and I read it and I started weeping. It says this, Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verse 1. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. <sighs> Heavenly Father, thank you, God. Thank you, God, that you have revealed yourself to us. Where would we be without you, Lord? We would be so lost so utterly devastated and broken beyond hope. There would be no hope for us. But Jesus, you are our hope and you have restored hope to us through the revelation of the gospel to our lives that you have set us free. Those of us who have called upon your name, Jesus, you've set us free from the penalty of sin and death. You've reconciled us to God. You've brought us forgiveness 
You brought us near to the Father. Thank you, Lord. Help us to know you, to understand you, to love you, and to love others better, just as we learned in the catechism this morning. The greatest commandment, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love others as ourselves. And the new command that you gave us, which even supersedes that, that says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Thank you, Jesus. Please help us, Lord, to understand our relationship with you better and more. Also, God, please help us to be curious about who we are created in a lot of similar ways in the image of God, but each one unique, each one different, each one special, specially, purposefully, uniquely created in the image of God. Help us to understand ourselves, Lord, so that we can grow in our capacity to experience you in the deep parts of our lives. Like King David said, you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in, the in, in my inmost being. Help us to spend time with you there, God. We need your help for these things. We thank you, Lord, for the healing that you bring in our lives. We thank you for the peace that you're able to give as a result of your truth. Help us to move into it further. And again, Lord, I pray, God, for Gloria's family, for Angel and her family, Lord. Please, Lord, help them to experience your presence in this time of loss, Lord. It hurts so, so bad to lose those that we love. Help them to bring their hurt to you, God, that you may meet them there. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.